tell you about Hope Channel a little bit more later. Good. How many of you were here last night? Can I see your hands? Let me ask this. How many of you were not here last night? Shame on you. What were you doing last night? We actually started last night. This morning I preached a, a regular sermon that's not connected to winsome witnessing. So you really didn't miss a whole lot last night except the foundation of winsome witnessing. But here it is. Let me give it to you in a nutshell. Winsome witnessing will win some. Yeah, you know, when I became a uh, Adventist Christian, and let me ask another question, and be honest with me, you wouldn't be anything other than that. How many of you are Seventh Day Adventists, members of Seventh Day Adventist Church? Okay, now I knew that. Now here's the real question: How many of you are not members of Seventh Day Adventist Church? Anybody? Okay, glad you're here. That helps me because then I know some terminology. You know, Adventists talk in code. You know, we use all this code language. We got secret hand signs too. No, we really don't. We don't at all. <laughs> but anyway, shouldn't joke like that. People will take me seriously. Uh, but anyway, that helps me. I grew up in a, uh, half my childhood was spent in a Baptist family. And then um, the other half of my childhood, which my wife says I'm still in, but actually I'm not. But the other, the other half of my childhood was uh, nothing. Uh, we didn't go to church, and I was uh, anything but a Christian. And then I encountered Seventh-day Adventists as I began studying Bible prophecy. I was very interested in what was going to happen in our world. And that was 1979. I just graduated from high school, 17 years old. You don't have to do the math. I'm 44. I'll be 44 years old very shortly. So I did that for you. But at 17, I was studying the Word of God to understand what is, what's happening in the world. 79 was a very tumultuous period. You had... Uh, you had hostages overseas. You had uh, a mile get gas. I had a motorcycle, so I'd bypass them all and fill up that way. But anyway, you know, I think it's very similar today. We don't have the mile-long gas lines. You just have to bring your wheelbarrow full of money to the pump, and then you're okay. But they get, get you either way. Why was I telling you about this? Because when I first became a Christian, I was so excited about everything I'd learned, I went out and I started telling everybody everything I had learned without them asking. That's not winsome witnessing. In fact, I'll share with you in a minute, in just a very short second here, uh, what I was doing. What I discovered later, though, as I matured in my Christian walk, is that if you're going to win some people to Christ, you need to present Jesus' message in the same way that Jesus would do it in a winsome manner. And so that's basically the, the foundation that we laid last night. But before we begin today, let's bow our heads and ask God's Spirit to be with us. Father in heaven, we do want to thank you for your love, your grace, the salvation that you've provided through your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we come here together this afternoon, Lord, we want to pray for your Spirit to be with us, that you'll bless us, uh, quicken our minds and our hearts and teach us. I pray, Father, you'll give me the words and uh, the say that will be practical and useful for us here gathered today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what I'm going to share with you today can be applied uh, to any faith community, but because we're, I'm coming from a Seventh-day Adventist background, and most of you are Seventh-day Adventists, I'm really going to be talking using Seventh-day Adventist illustrations, that type of thing. But yeah, I've presented this seminar in other situations with other people 
denominational backgrounds, and the same principles apply. But if you'll indulge me on that, I'd appreciate it. Winsome witnessing. No, that one's supposed to do that. Here, we're going to skip through that. I'm going to come back to that. This is it. Winning them without killing them. That's what you're supposed to do. Unfortunately, nobody told me that when I first became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And I spent the second part of my childhood in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And when I became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, my stepfather, with whom I was still living, he was a lapsed Catholic, a very lapsed Catholic, uh, so far lapsed that he was an alcoholic, never attended Mass, and he had a number of personal issues going on. Well, I wanted to win my lapsed Catholic stepfather to Christ. And all these new truths I'd been learning in the Scripture, I thought were the perfect thing to help him. You know, Daniel 7 is very interesting for a lapsed Catholic when you get into the little horn and the, the power there in Revelation 13. And so I proceeded to share that with my Catholic stepfather. He didn't find it as intriguing as I found it. So uh, I, I had to pull out the big guns. Those were the small guns. I had to pull out the big guns. And I figured my stepfather, his real name's Harry, in my book, Winsome Witnessing, I think I give him another name to protect the innocent. Me, that is, to protect me in case he ever reads the book. But uh, I, I wanted to uh, help Harry. And I figured Harry's going to be one of those people that accepts Christ like at the last moment, you know, the last few minutes of mercy. You know, he's hopefully it all comes together for him. And so I thought, well, the way to tell him that is, okay, get into prophecy and I've got to show him what's going to happen in the last few moments of time. You know, when the Antichrist power is deceiving people and all this. So Harry and I were seated in the living room. My mother was there, and I was trying to win my alcoholic stepfather, whom I didn't really grow up with. She, my mother married him right before I left the house, thank God. <laughs> he and I had a hard time at the beginning to get along with, which we, you'll shortly see, and, and no small part due to my faith in Christ. So I was witnessing to Harry, and I said, you know, Harry, what's going to happen here in the end time is uh, religious leaders, and in fact, the, the leader of your church, the Pope, is going to play a very important, crucial role in this. Uh, they're going to deceive the world. And I had a little, I had it kind of wrong in Revelation 13. I said, you know, they're going to call fire down from God out of heaven. And so as Christians, whether we're Catholic, Baptist, Adventist, whatever, we need not to follow man, we need to follow God, right? You know, even in the Adventist church, you can make that mistake. You follow leaders instead of following the leader, Jesus Christ. And so we were talking about this and talking about how it's all going to come together in the end. Actually, I was doing all the talking. And when I told him this, that he'd call down fire from God out of heaven, Revelation 13, I have a little different understanding of that today, but he, he said, you know what? If I see anybody call fire down from God out of heaven, I'm going to go up and shake his hand and tell him you must be from God. Well, he totally missed the point. I said, wait a minute, that, that's not the point. The point is the devil can do miracles. What are you, some type of idiot or something? Can't you figure this out? Now, here I was witnessing to him, you see. I, nobody told me about winsome part of witnessing. I was just going to hammer the truth home. Well, we got into a very, very heated argument. Very heated argument. And I'm actually ashamed to say we started uh, threatening each other's lives. Now, I don't know who started that, me or him, but I'm the one with the new shotgun that said, I'll go get my shotgun and kill you if you're going to be that stupid. 
Now, I don't know how you get to that other than eating all the hot pepper sauce that we used to eat back in Louisiana. Joe, be careful. I know you're a Texan. You know, be careful with that hot pepper sauce. But we, it got very serious. My mother pried us apart and said, uh, go to your room. Me, she told me that, not Harry. And I went to my room. And when I went to my room, conviction came over me. The Holy Spirit just came in. And, you know, I've never heard God's voice audibly, but I heard his voice. I heard his voice. And he was telling me, you were wrong. You are the Christian. You're the one to represent Christ. And look what you were doing. And the Lord and I had this uh, little discussion. I said, yeah, but Lord, if he wasn't so stupid, he would have gotten the point. If his brain wasn't so pickled from alcohol, he would have gotten the point. How are you going to win this guy? And the Lord told me, well, not the way you're doing it. That's for sure. And the Lord convicted me. He said, you need to go and apologize to Harry. Well, that was the last thing I wanted to do was go apologize to Harry. And the Lord and I had it had it out there where we talked. And, and I just realized through the Holy Spirit's conviction, if I didn't apologize to Harry right then, my whole Christian experience would be faulty from the very beginning and that it would just mess me up. It would throw me off the track from the very beginning. And so I swallowed my pride and nearly choked on it and went and visited with Harry and apologized. No ifs, ands, or buts. I said, I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And he was gracious to accept my apology. Later on, it actually turned into a blessing because uh, when his family, his kids, had an intervention with him and I was invited to be there. I don't know if you know what an intervention is, but with an alcoholic or a drug addict, it's a pretty, pretty serious uh, type of thing. It's where all the family members get around you and tell you that you got a problem. And alcoholics and drug addicts and addictive personalities like to deny they have a problem. And it's hard to deny it when you got a dozen people around you saying, yeah, you got a problem, here's what it's done to my life, and everybody's doing that. Well, Harry was just drilled down into the dirt after that intervention. He got up and walked out, and I walked out with him. And the Lord gave me words to say to him that he went and got treatment. He said, Gary, you're the only one I respect in that whole bunch. And I date it back to the time where I actually asked forgiveness of him, because I don't think anybody had ever done that with him. But you know what? what was bad about that whole thing was my witness... And here I was, just trying to win this guy to God, and I was ready to blow him away and kill him. Hence, winning him without killing him. You know, I was going to drag his still warm corpse to the foot of Christ and say, there, I bagged him for you, Jesus. There he is. I won one. Send me out for the next guy. You know? Doesn't work that way, does it? Winning him without killing them. I like what uh, writer of this book, Evangelism, has to say, page 291. It says, when truth is held as truth... Only by the conscience, when the heart is not stimulated and made receptive, only the mind is affected. But when truth is received as truth by the heart, it is passed through the conscience and has captivated the soul with its pure principles. It is placed in the heart by the Holy Spirit, who reveals its beauty to the mind that its transforming power may be seen in the character. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but let me kind of break that down. When we are seeking to win someone to Christ, there's the heart that has to be affected, not just the mind. And I don't know if you're like me, but my mistake was I was always aiming for the frontal lobe. Now, by the way, this is a good friend of mine. (laughs) We work together in Africa. He probably doesn't know I'm using his head as a target. But anyway, he, you know, we have to reach people not by trying to convince them intellectually of the truth, what we have to do is we have to reach their heart, the seat of their emotions, where, where, where they are as a person. 
Now, that doesn't mean you neglect the mind, but it was very clear from the statement that I read that the Holy Spirit has to get the truth into the heart and they'll also captivate the mind and the conscience and convict them. And that's what I had neglected. I had neglected to reach Harry's heart. I was just going after his mind, trying to convince him of truth. And it's no, there's no secret as to why I failed. It's because I didn't understand the key principles of soul winning. Now, I wish I could say that I learned that right away, how to do that. It took me several years. I was even a, a full-time evangelist and pastor, and I was still out trying to convince people of the mind. And if you had said, well, you need to reach their heart, I would have said, yes, yeah, you need to reach their heart, of course. But I was still trying to convince the intellect. And when I learned that you had to reach the heart first, that changed the dynamics of my soul-winning endeavors, and it also made me much more effective in winning people. If you're just out there trying to pound home the logistics of truth, laying out the logical aspects of Bible truth, you will only win a small proportion of people compared to if you also lay out the logistical uh, pattern of truth and combine it with real Christ-centered teaching and preaching that reaches the heart and also building friendships. And we'll talk about how you reach the heart quite a bit. I believe that a lot of witnessing that takes place in our faith community, the Adventist faith community, is based on the frontal lobe, trying to convict just the mind and totally ignoring the heart. And it's a, it's a common problem, common to other denominations as well. In fact, you go back to the uh, Middle Ages in the account here in Great Controversy, a historical account of the uh, Christian church, we read that during the... Uh, Protestant Reformation in France, some zealot Protestants put placards up attacking the mass where in one night posted all over France. But instead of advancing the reform, this zealous but ill-judged movement brought ruin, not only upon its propagators, but upon the friends of the reformed faith throughout France. It gave the Romanists what they had long desired, a pretext for demanding the utter destruction of the heretics as agitators dangerous to the stability of the throne and the peace of the nation. You know what happened? Is the king of France, who was a very devout Catholic, he wakes up and, and the story is told that one of these placards actually found it to the king's bedroom chamber, to his door. And he wakes up and he reads this placard that says the mass is not biblical and it actually does a, diminishes the crucifixion, death, and salvation that Christ provided. And he becomes irate. And he orders the Protestants to be hunted down and killed, and they are slain by the tens of thousands. And so it basically shut down the Protestant Reformation in France. Now, what was on that placard was accurate. The information was accurate, but it was ill-timed. It was ill-advised. It was not wise whatsoever. And so instead of advancing the truth... As the writer here says, it actually gave the enemy the pretext they needed to go kill all the Protestants. And so Protestantism was stopped dead in its tracks, quite literally, in France because of this. Now, I believe that what happened there has happened occasionally here in our own faith community. I moved to Modesto, California in 1995. I no longer live there, but I lived there uh, for quite a while moved there, opened up the newspaper to get acquainted with my new home, and there I see an ad in the newspaper that says, uh, 
Saturday is the Sabbath and Sunday is the mark of the beast. And it had some other choice things to say about the beast power. Then it said, sponsored by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I went, oh. is that what this community is about, this church in this area? Because that's not what Seventh-day Adventists are about. And the next week, I opened up the paper again, and there was the ad again. But fortunately, this time, it did not say sponsored by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So I think the Adventist Church got to finding out who actually had put that ad, and they had pulled it out. But see, that was one of these ill-advised movements of somebody trying to put what they discerned as truth out there, but attacking you know, other people within the community and actually creating more of a wall and a problem than building bridges that are going to win people to Christ. Now, we need to preach the truth. It's what we're talking about is timing and the way you do it. Have you ever driven up to uh, Oregon? And I believe in Oregon... Or Washington, they've got these big billboards. Used to have a big picture of the Pope. We've got them over in Florida on the East Coast. Has some choice things to say about the Pope. And uh, not very nice, not very pleasant, especially if you're a Catholic. And that creates all sorts of ill will when you try to witness that way. It's this type of witnessing. The roaring lion type of witnessing. You know... <laughs> Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, but John saw him in Revelation like what? Like a lamb, the slain lamb. I used to train evangelists at Amazing Facts. I still go back and teach at Amazing Facts College of Evangelism. And one of the things I would tell them as I trained them how to preach and share truth is I'd say, preach like a lion, visit like a lamb. That's not original with me, but preach like a lion, visit like a lamb. In other words, when you're in the pulpit and you're preaching... You preach decisively. You act like you know what you believe. And so you need to be convicted that what you're teaching is the Word of God, and you don't teach it with a whole bunch of ifs, ands, and buts. You've got to be convinced this is truth, and I'm going to present it. And you don't say, well, one side believes this, and one side says that, and another side says this, and hey, you'll never guess which side I'm on. You know, you don't, you don't preach that way. You preach like a lion. You know what your target is, you preach it. But you visit like a lamb. You build relationships. You get acquainted with people and people find that, that you love them, you care for them. So that when you're in the pulpit, they don't see the lion. They see the lamb. They hear the truth in a distinct voice, but they see the lamb. But you know what's happened, I think, is in a lot of churches, in a lot of people's lives, when you say evangelism, the model that comes to mind is what the evangelist does in the pulpit, preaching like that lion. And so we try to be the lion to our neighbor, and our neighbor thinks we're going to eat them for lunch. You know, we go over there, and we're going to tell them the truth and help them understand this. But that's the model that a lot of us have for evangelism. We know we sit and we listen to the evangelist and say, wow, man, he's just nailing. It's all truth, and we feel the conviction in our heart. Well, we're going to go pass that same conviction on to our neighbor, our friend, our coworker. And it doesn't work that way because what we don't often see is what a good evangelist is doing outside of the pulpit. They're visiting with people. They're helping people come to a personal relationship with Christ. I was holding a, an evangelistic meeting and I was dealing with some, um, some lifestyle issues where the Bible talks about how to live practically for Christ in our lifestyle. The way we dress, the way we 
uh, recreate and these type of things. Well, there was one particular person coming to this meeting that I knew this was going to be a real test for them. I'd gotten acquainted with them, and I could see that this was going to be an extreme test for them. So I went to them before that evening. They were seated in the chair. I went up to them, and I said, how are you doing? I had a little small talk with them. And I said, you know what? I really appreciate you coming to these meetings. Have you enjoyed it? Yes, they have. And then I said, uh, any, you have any questions? No. I said, you agree with everything? They said, yes. And I said, good. You're probably going to disagree tonight. But I didn't tell her that. I said, well, you know what? Tonight, I'm going to be getting into some areas that may make you a little uncomfortable. They make me uncomfortable. But I want to preach the word of God. And I have found that by following these things that I'm going to share tonight, that it has actually blessed my life and been a protective hedge around me and helped keep me closer to God. And I want you to know that as I share these things, that I am not targeting this at you as an individual. But I also recognize that some of these things are going to stretch your thinking. And I want you to know that I love you and I'm praying for you. And will you pray for me? Because it's going to be difficult for me to do this. And she said, yes. That got us over the hump with her. And it was a test for her when I presented those things. But because I visited like a lamb with her and showed humility and mercy and love, I was able to get up front and say, here's the truth. No questions asked. This is the truth. Here's what the Bible says about it. And later, she, uh, as she was preparing for baptism, the thing that she had to make the decision over were the very things I preached on that night. And this is several weeks later. And it was totally low pressure with her. I just say, well, you know what? I know you love the Lord. You understand what the Bible says? Yes, she said. I said, then I believe you will do what's right. I believe you love God and he'll show you and you'll submit to him. You'll do what's right. And she was baptized and these things were not an issue with her. She got the victory over them. That's visiting like a lamb. And when you're working with somebody, no matter what the issue may be, whether it's a lifestyle issue or just submitting their life to Jesus Christ in, in a, uh, a very real fashion, as you get close to people's heart and you can talk heart to heart, that's where you help them say yes to Jesus and no to the world. Does that make sense to you? So you preach like a lamb. When you preach the truth, you share the truth in a Bible study. You, know, you need to be sure of what you say, but you definitely have to combine it with the lamb-like principles of Christ. Reading from the book Gospel Workers, page 193, we read here, Your success will not depend so much upon your knowledge and accomplishments as upon your ability, read the rest of it with me, to find your way to the heart. Now that's the bottom line right there. It's not how much you know, it's not how much you've accomplished, it's not your degrees, it's not how successful you are in business. It's whether you know how to find your way to the heart. If you can reach someone's heart, then you'll have true success in gospel work. How do you do that? Continuing on here. By being social and coming close to the people, you may turn the current of their thoughts more readily than by the most able discourse. So more effective than the best preaching or the finely tuned Bible study is knowing how to come close to people by being social with them. This was the way Jesus modeled how to reach lost people. This is why he became a man and he lived alongside among us. He didn't just write the truth up in the sky and say, well, here's the truth, follow it. He actually came down, as it says in John 1.14, and he tabernacled among us. He lived among us as a human being so that he could become one of us, come close to us, come close to us. We could see his smile, hear the passion in his voice, feel his touch. That's 
why we need to follow his incarnational model. So let's listen to how Jesus made witnessing a way of life. While he ministered to the poor, Jesus studied also to find ways of reaching the rich. He sought the acquaintance of the wealthy and cultured Pharisee, the Jewish nobleman and the Roman, Roman ruler. He accepted their invitations, attended their feasts. He made himself familiar with their interests and occupations that he might do what? Gain access to their hearts and reveal to them the imperishable riches. That's the model we should follow. Getting close to people so that we're winning their hearts. Now, I want to back up, and I just want to walk you through this again here because there's so much here. Notice what he did. He studied to find ways to reach people. Now, here in the context of this book, he's talking about reaching the rich, but it applies to anyone. As you're wanting to win someone to Christ, you need to study how to reach them. Prayerfully study. What are their interests? What are their needs? We'll talk more about that in a moment. But you study and you pray about it. Lord, give me insights to this person. How can I reach them for you? And I believe and I've experienced it. The Holy Spirit will give you insights. Then you, you seek their acquaintance. You find ways to get close to them. That means that you're going to accept their invitations. You're going to eat at the dinner table with them. You're going to have them come over to your place and eat. And you're going to make yourself familiar with, familiar with their interest and their occupations. So you're going to find out what they're interested in. Then you're going to study up on it so that you can talk to them about what they're interested in and not just what you're interested in. And then you can turn the conversations so that you can tell them, about the imperishable riches of Jesus Christ. My favorite illustration on this is uh, from Mark Finley. And if you've seen Mark Finley's uh, Making Friends for God, you might recall this illustration. Mark uh, Gale was a young pastor up in Connecticut. Uh, he just graduated from school, went to his first district, and he was visiting all the members. And he went to one lady and he said, you know, I'd like to come by and visit you. She said, well, you know, my husband's not a member of our church. He said, that, that's fine. I'd love to meet him. She said, well, he hates pastors. And if you come, he'll bodily throw you out of the house. He hates pastors. You cannot come over here. And he said, well, that's all right. Let me uh, ask you two questions. She said, okay, go ahead. He said, when, is he when does he get home from work? And he said, good, I'm going to come by at that time when he found out the time. And then he said, and by the way, what is his hobby? What does he enjoy more than anything else? He wasn't expecting the second answer. She said, guns. He's a gun collector. He hates pastors and loves guns. Isn't that a wonderful combination for a pastor? So he said, okay. So Mark shows up on the guy's doorstep as a young pastor. And he told the wife, he said, I'm showing up at this particular time. Don't you answer the door. Let him answer the door. Rings the doorbell. Guy comes to the door. He says, hi, I'm Pastor Mark Finley from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And as this, this uh, scowl is rising on the guy's face, he says, and by the way, I hear that you like guns. You're a gun collector, know a lot about guns. Well, I'd like to learn more about guns. And I thought I'd come and visit you, and maybe you could tell me a little bit about guns. I've never met an Adventist pastor before that wanted to hear about guns. They were trying to always take them away from them. And he said, uh, well, yeah, come on in. So Mark comes in. The guy shows him all his guns and all his collection. He says, Pastor, I've got a target range outside, out in the backyard. Let's go out there. So he takes him out in the back. 
puts say, <laughs> Mark's not the target. Obviously, he's still around. Puts a can up on a post, and he goes back to his uh, shooting place, and he says, here's what we do, Pastor. We put the can up there, and he takes a rifle, and he shoots, and he hits the can. He says, this is what we do. Here, you do it. Puts the gun in Mark's hands. Mark has never shot a gun in his life, never held a gun in his life. So the guy puts the can back up there, and Mark aims, and he shoots, and he nails the can. Bang! This hits the can. And the pastor goes, wow, that was fantastic, that's great. Here, do it again. And Mark says, no, I only do that one time a day. Let's go back in the house and let's visit. And so he goes back and he visits with the guy. He says, you know, I can see that you're a responsible person with these guns. And you've got a fantastic collection. You're good with it. You're responsible with it. But there are a lot of people that are very irresponsible when it comes to guns. I'm starting a meeting next Friday night. And I'm going to be talking about why there's so much sin and suffering and crime. And why people are irresponsible with guns. I'd love to have you there. Would you come? Do you think that guy came? Of course he did. He came, he went through the whole series of meetings, he accepted Jesus in his heart, and became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. You see, because Mark made himself familiar with his interest. I was pastoring a church where the pastor before me did the same type of thing. This gentleman who was a member, uh, his wife was a member, was very antagonistic to Adventists, very antagonistic to his wife's religion, and he too hated pastors. In fact, he would threaten to throw them off the porch. He'd give them three seconds to get off his porch or he'd kick them off the porch. Well, he was a fisherman. He loved fishing. And the pastor before me was also a fisherman. He discovered that John liked fishing. And he went out and he said, John, I'm new to the area and I really would like to learn where to fish around here. Would you take me fishing? And they became fishing buddies. And over a period of time, John softened and John gave his heart to Jesus and John was baptized. And when I showed up as the next pastor, John would tell me this story with a smile across his face. He said, Pastor, you wouldn't believe what I was like before this pastor came and fished with me. I was ornery. I was mean. I would kick people off my porch. He said, I was ugly and awful. He said, but now look at me. I'm filled with peace and happiness. And he was just beaming with God's joy. And that's because somebody took the time to gain access to his heart instead of just preaching the truth at him. And that is Jesus' model. Let me share with you, in a nutshell here, the winsome witnessing strategy that I've gleaned from uh, these writings here, these books that I reference. Our audience is to go to your neighbors one by one. You say, we're not talking about big crowds here. We're to hold public meetings. But our real audience for us as individuals is to find our neighbors, our friends, go to them one by one and find our way to their heart. We're to come close to them. That's our method. Our means is to sympathize, to pray with them, watch for opportunities to do them good, and to do what? Open the Word of God. Open the Word of God as we sympathize and we pray with them. And we're not to neglect the power of persuasion, the power of prayer, or the power of the love of God. So if we will do that, then we will reap the following. Why don't you read it with me? Volume 9, The Testimonies. If we would humble ourselves before God and be kind and courteous and tender-hearted and pitiful, there would be 100 conversions to the truth where now there is only one. You see, by being kind and pitiful and courteous and loving, finding the way to the heart, instead of baptizing people one at a time, we'd be winning people 100 to one. 
because people would know that we love Jesus, we love them, and we love God's truth. And that is the model that Jesus wants us to follow. Multitudes will be brought to Christ if we will be winsome witnesses for him. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, what this can do for us as a church and what we need done for us as a church. By the way, are you hot? Is it stuffy in here? How many are stuffy? Well, blow your nose. No, how, how many are comfortable the way it is? Okay, I'm sorry. Those who are stuffy, along with me, were outvoted. So don't sleep. Now, if you sleep, I'll have to come wake you up. Those might be the hot ones. I've got a little laser here. You know, they use these on the aircraft, the terrorists do, to blind the uh, aircraft, the pilots. Remedy for Laodicea. Jesus' message to the Laodicean church. What did he say to the church in Laodicea? Revelation 3, verses 14, 22. He said, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So then, because you are what? Lukewarm. The way I'm feeling right now. Lukewarm. And neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's Jesus' message to Laodicea. And that is a description of the Christian church, Adventists included, but not exclusively Adventists. The Christian church in the last days. In fact, if you study this out prophetically, this literally applies to the time period in which we live. The Christian church is described as the Laodicean church. Now, I've been to Laodicea, the, the real place called Laodicea. And it is uh, about, oh, about seven miles maybe as of crow flies from some hot springs that, that come out of a mountain. And the hot springs cascade down over the side of the mountain and they leave uh, calcium deposits. So you get these white, they call them travertine cliffs there. Very beautiful place there. But then the water, they would pipe the water from the hot springs all the way over to Laodicea, and there they would pipe it into their baths, but by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. It was no longer hot. And John, as he was dictating what Jesus was telling him, the Lord wanted to use an illustration that they could comprehend, that the, the lukewarm waters were not like the hot waters. The lukewarm waters were just blasé. And he says, that's the way the Christian church is going to be in the last days. They're not hot for me. They're not on fire for me. They're not totally committed. They're Christian enough just to be comfortable, just like a tepid bath will leave you. Just comfortable, just soothed. Well, that's the way we are as Christians today. I mean, you try, you go out there and you try to change some Christian's life, get them to be more deeply committed to Christ, follow the Bible more closely. You're going to find the majority of Christians will reject anything that requires a change in their life. And there are reformers, people who preach change, in all the different denominations, and they don't find any better acceptance because people are comfortable where they are. They don't like to change. And as Adventists, we have to recognize that we too are Laodiceans, and we have to be willing for the Holy Spirit to challenge us. In fact, I pray occasionally, Lord, challenge me. Don't let me get comfortable here. Shake me up. Wake me up. Because we are all having, we all have the tendency to sleep. Well, I was a brand new Christian and uh, had been an Adventist probably for less than a year. And I was studying this Laodicean message. I was reading through Revelation. And the Lord convicted me that Laodiceanism is a disease that will infect every Christian and that I wasn't going to be excluded. 
And I was very convicted by that. And I said, Lord, you know, I have committed my life to you and I want to be in this for the long haul. I don't want to be a Laodicean Christian because the bad thing about Laodiceans is they are deceived. Did you see that? Let me see if I can go back here. They're deceived. It says, uh, they, here it is, they do not know. They do not know that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. What a terrible condition to be in. You're ugly, you stink, you can't see anything. And you're the one that doesn't know it. You know, everybody else around you knows it. And you don't know it. And so I prayed, Lord, help me to always know if I'm slipping in the light of scenism. Whatever it takes, wake me up and get me back to you. Well, I'm glad I prayed that prayer. I didn't realize what I was praying. But I'm glad I prayed that prayer because then what I found is what the Lord did is he started giving me opportunities to share my faith. Here I was, a brand new Christian. I'd go to church either in my souped-up hot rod with the Christian, I, I changed the Christian rock and roll with it blasting. Or I'd go out on my motorcycle to church with my long hair down my back and my tattered blue jeans and my rock and roll t-shirts. And here I was, riding up to the Adventist church. I was quite a sight to behold. And you know what they did with me? And, and by the way, the, the one of the first Sabbaths... Uh, uh, I went for Vespers in the evening and we were standing around talking. They said, oh, how'd your afternoon go? They were really checking up on me. I didn't know that. But they were really checking up on me. I said, oh, I had a great afternoon. Oh, what'd you do? I said, well, we had a crawfish boil. It was in Louisiana. You had a crawfish boil. Yes. And I took their enthusiasm for interest. <laughs> I said, yeah, those are the best crawfish I've had in a long time. And here I was, a brand new Seventh-day Adventist. I said, oh, really? Oh, yeah, we had shrimp too. Oh, okay. Do you know every Sabbath thereafter, I always had an invitation home to some member's home to eat lunch with them and spend the whole afternoon? Try. If you're getting lonely, try that. Just tell, tell a member of the church you just ate a bunch of crawfish. I'm sure they'll help you out. But here's what they did with me. They brought me close, and the guy that especially took me under his wing, he started taking me out, visiting people who'd come to the same meetings that I had attended. He took me out witnessing, sharing our faith, long hair and everything else. And I asked him, I said, Dickie, I said, uh, after I kind of caught on what was going on around the church, that I was the only one with hair down my back that was of the male gender. I said, uh, by the way, I wish I had some of that hair going down my back right now. I said, Dickie, I said, what do people think about my long hair? And he said, ah, oh, don't worry about it. He said, your hair's short compared to mine. When I came here, it was down to my waist. Oh, okay, that's cool. I felt good about that then. And, you know, it was later that the Lord convicted me that the long hair was getting in the way of my witness. And I'm not saying that would get in the way of everybody's witness, but it was getting in the way of my witness. And so I, I had it cut. But the Lord put me out there sharing my faith. And what I have discovered is as I share my faith, the Lord strengthens my faith. And at some of my lowest points when I have had my struggles of faith, the Lord would put me out there sharing with someone that as I shared with them, I probably actually walked away with a greater blessing and it strengthened my faith. And I believe one of the reasons that we have such an epidemic of Laodiceanism in our midst is because we don't understand this dynamic. The only way to keep from being Laodicean is to share your faith. Now, you don't feel like doing it when you've got a good case of Laodiceanism, but that's the very time to go out and share your faith because that is the road to recovery. Listen to this from um, Gospel Workers Evangelism, page 356. 
The best medicine you can give the church is not preaching or sermonizing, but planning work for them. Planning work for them. That's the best medicine. If set to work, the despondent would soon forget their despondency. The weak would become strong. The ignorant, intelligent. I need a lot of help there. And all would be prepared to present the truth as it is in Jesus. So are you discouraged in your faith? You wish you knew more about the Bible? You know, do you feel like Christianity or your religion's all a sham? There's got to be more to it than this? Well, get out and start sharing your faith. Start finding other people that are hungry for the truth, that, that really respect and, and would love to know what you know. So are you spiritually dead? Get out and share the truth. You want to know your Bible better? Get out and give Bible studies. Is church drying and uninviting? Start winning people to Christ and bringing them to church. That's how you will keep your faith alive. I love this from the book Christ Object Lessons, page 354. As we seek to win others to Christ, bearing the burden of souls in our prayers, our own hearts will throb with the quickening influence of God's grace. Our own affections will glow with more divine fervor. Our whole Christian life will be more of a reality, more earnest, more prayerful. How many of you want a dynamic Christian life? Let me see your hands. That's what it's all about. But if I were a wagering man, I would bet that almost everybody here, if not everybody here, has stood in the pew, sung a song, listened to a preacher and say, that was as dead and as dry as anything I've ever experienced in my life. What's it all about? Is this all a sham, everybody going through the motions? You know, there are those periods in our life that we have those experiences, that we wonder, is there really anything to this? Well, there is if you're out sharing your faith. That is the medicine that ignites our love for Christ. Volume 8 of the Testimonies, page 447. God calls upon every church member to enter his service. Why? Because truth that's not lived, that's not imparted to others, loses its life-giving power, its healing virtue. If you're not imparting it, then you will not be able to experience the value of the truth and you, your love will grow cold. So two essential reasons for witnessing. Number one, there are lost people out there who need to find Christ. Many have gone down to ruin who might have been saved if their neighbors, common men and women, had put forth personal effort for them. That's an awesome statement. Because what that says is we have a responsibility to our neighbors to win them to Christ that nobody else can fulfill that responsibility. Now that feels like a porcupine being dropped in your lap, I know. And I don't know how to totally figure that out except to say that God's made us an important link in the chain of salvation, let down to save mankind. And here, here's the way I look at it, is that uh, I've got a role to play. I may not be the only person to play that role in a lost person's life. But if you picture somebody with me who is hell-bound. They're walking down the road to the pit of fire. And you've got these believers who are walking away from the pit of fire to heaven, which is on the opposite end of the continuum. And they're walking towards heaven. And as they pass these hell-bound people, they say, you don't want to go that way. Temperature's really hot that way. You don't want to go down there. You know, that's not going to bring you true happiness. You want to turn around. Well, you know, this person's reading the road signs, and road signs say it's going to be a beautiful, glorious place, you know, Palm Springs. It doesn't tell you Palm Springs gets to be 125 degrees in the summer, in the shade. So they're, they're heading south. By the way, I'm not trying to equate Palm Springs with hell. 
Not really. Anyway, it didn't even occur to me. So you're, they're heading this way, heading south. And as uh, they, they first hear this person say, you don't want to go that way, and they think, they must not read the road signs, obviously. It's a nice place down there. So they keep heading towards Hellfire. Next person comes by, next Christian says, hey, you don't want to go down that way. Bad place down there. And they think, hey, I've heard that before, but hey, I'm already packed for my trip. I'm going to continue. So you get the point. The more people they encounter on their way to hell that tell them you don't want to go that way, the more likely they are to listen and heed the warning and finally stop and have that communication, that conversation where they start investigating and they do turn around and they head towards heaven. You got the point? And we don't know who we are in that chain that's let down to save people but we are an important link if it's just that quick conversation that says you don't want to go that way or if we're the one that has the in-depth conversation that brings somebody to church. A friend of mine is a, a leader in the church on the East Coast. He worked uh, in, let's see, I think it was in the Nixon administration. He was in the Nixon administration, young, young man. He was on a trip, as I understand the story, and he was here on the West Coast, I think in the San Francisco area, in a hotel room. He opened up the nightstand, he sees the Gideon Bible, he sees a book, Bible Readings for the Home, produced by Seventh-day Adventists. And he begins reading this book. That book ultimately leads to his conversion to Christ and becoming a member of the Adventist Church and becoming a leader in our church. Unbeknownst to him, a little lady up in that area had for years been spending her own money putting these books in these hotels. Over the years, she'd never heard of any fruit from ever doing this. And she gave up and she stopped doing it. Not very long ago, he was at a fellowship dinner, a potluck, I believe, and he's sitting with this lady and they're talking. And she says, you know, years ago I used to witness, and one of the things I used to do is I used to buy these Bible readings for the home and put them in these hotels in the area. Never, nothing ever came of it. Isn't God's sense of humor just great, you know? <laughs> nothing ever came of it. Nobody was ever won by it. And he goes, wait a minute, when did you do that? This, t- this era, these years? Yeah. He says, well, here's my story. He was the convert from those, that lady's books. I love the Lord's sense of humor. Put it right there. He said, so here was this lady. She was being used by God. So yes, it may sound like, feel like a porcupine in our lap, but we are important in God's plan of salvation. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I have planted, Apollos watered, read it with me, but God gave the increase. You may be a planter, you may be a waterer, you may be a weeder, you may be a reaper. You don't know what your role is. But as you fulfill your role, you'll win souls. So the first essential reason for witnessing is lost people need us. The second essential reason is the one we just talked about a moment ago. It's the cure for Laodiceanism. The very life of the church depends on her faithfulness in fulfilling the Lord's commission. To neglect this work is surely to invite spiritual feebleness and decay. Now listen, I don't have to have the writer of Desire of Ages to tell me this for me to know that it's absolutely true. I've experienced it personally. I've experienced corporately as a pastor in a church. That if you want to kill a church, just neglect sharing the gospel with people. 
Just get a church where they're focused more inwardly than outwardly, and you'll find that you live amidst cannibals. The members start feeding on each other and it starts causing problems. And so if you're navel-gazing, looking at your own belly button to find the lint in the church, well, that's... <laughs> then you will find that you just start eating each other. You have to be focused outward if you're going to be a healthy church. Otherwise, you're going to wilt. Let ministers teach church members that in order to grow spiritually, they must carry the burden that the Lord has laid upon them, the burden of leading souls into the truth. That's the only way to do it. Before Jesus comes, God's people who are ready for his coming will have this experience. Reading here from um, Christian service. The great outpouring of the Spirit of God, which lightens the whole earth with His glory, will not come until we have an enlightened people. Notice what an enlightened people constitutes. People that know by experience what it means to be laborers together with God. That's the enlightened people. When we have whole, entire wholehearted consecration to the service of Christ, God will recognize the fact by an outpouring of his spirit without measure, but this will not be while the largest portion of the church are not labors together with God. Do you want to live through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? How many of you want the latter rain? You know, I look forward to that because that's, that's the day when I know church is not going to be the same old, same old. It's going to be really exciting. The real moving of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's going to come when the larger proportion of our people have had an experience with God, being a co-laborer together with Him. So we can hasten this day by getting this experience. And once we get our eyes off of each other's belly buttons and start focusing ourselves on lost people, we can solve a lot of problems in the church, not only corporately, but individually. So I want to challenge you to do that. I want to challenge you personally, individually to commit yourselves to be used by God. And if you'll do that, you'll notice you'll fulfill, you will experience this promise fulfilled in your life from the eighth volume of the Testimonies, page 82. If they would work to win souls to Christ, they would soon be so busy proclaiming the truth and helping the suffering that they would have no time to dissect character, no time to surmise evil and then report the result of their supposed keenness and seeing beneath the surface. They will forget self in the desire to save souls. They'll see so much work to do, so many fellow beings to help, that they will have no time to look for faults in others. They will have no time to work on the negative side. I want to be a positive Christian, don't you? And this is the secret to it, to understand that if we want to experience Christ in a powerful way in our lives, we need to be out reaching people's hearts with the love of Jesus Christ and his message. And as we target their hearts and educate their intellects, People will give their lives to him.